Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Tango Juliet Fox Shop podcast, episode 70. Hope you're all well, keeping warm. It's a little bit uh, chilly, but um, I do feel slightly sorry for our builders at the moment. Bless them, they're all out there old bundled up with uh, woolly hats and coats and hoods and goodness knows what else. Got to say, I really do take my hat off to people who do those sorts of jobs in all sorts of weather, wet rain, freezing cold. Yeah, give me a nice warm office any day of the week, I think, sometimes. Right, so this week uh, I was speaking to Carol Rogers, really, really enjoy. I know I always say I really, really enjoy the conversations I have with people on this podcast, but I really do. I just, it's just brilliant. I love meeting these people who've done these incredible jobs and, um, yeah, real inspiration. So Carol is going to tell us all about what it's like to be a forensic biologist dealing with crime scenes. Really fascinating. And, you know, like everything else, um, as a senior investigator or someone who's done a lot of this kind of stuff, you you think you know quite a lot about it, and then you speak to someone who who's who does it day in and day out, and you realise actually you didn't know as much as you thought you knew. So, so yeah, I think you're going to find it really interesting. She talks about some fascinating jobs that she was involved in, and and how they do what they do. So, so yeah, I really hope you enjoy that. Um, before we do, just. Um, just something on the tempo and uh, regularity of the podcast. Um, yeah, I was getting myself a bit stressed there recently. I was juggling too many things. I was trying to do too much. Um, you know, I'm working for this startup, which is getting quite busy. Um, just life generally with young kids and juggling childcare and everything. And then sort of trying to fit in uh, one podcast interview a week. It was just becoming a bit too much. So I think what I'm going to do is probably uh, drop the tempo down maybe to once a fortnight. Appreciate that's probably going to, um, yeah, for those who get their weekly fix, then um, sorry about that. But yeah, I just need to try and uh, cut back a little bit. And uh, and who knows, maybe when things sort of quiet and down a bit or we get rid of the flipping builders, much as I love them, uh, then uh, maybe I can pick it back up to once a week. But I think for the time being, I'm going to drop back down to once a fortnight or once every 10 days or something like that. Um, and just uh, before I get into the interview with Carol, just something that popped up on the uh, news feed this week, which I just thought was worth touching on. And that was that the government are talking about making uh, street sexual harassment um, of women a criminal offence punishable by up to two years imprisonment. So uh, what that means, my understanding of what that actually means is things like wolf whistling, 
you know, sexually suggestive comments, you know, um, towards women, you know, the kind of classic white van man type behavior. Sorry to anybody out there who drives a white van who doesn't fall into that category. But um, yeah, I saw that and I just thought, hmm, really don't know about that. I think there's all sorts of things there for me. Firstly, I think there's already plenty of legislation that potentially addresses the more sort of objectionable and extreme forms of uh, bad behaviour in public places, such as the Public Order Act, um, indecent assault. And we know that, you know, you can ass assault people by more than physical contact. Um, yeah, and I just think at the time when the police are really struggling uh, to uh, investigate and prosecute the most serious offences like rape and serious sexual offences, to add an offence like that to an organisation that is already struggling massively uh, with un completely unreasonable levels of demand combined with inadequate resources for all the reasons that we've talked about on this podcast um, for the last sort of 18 months or so is just completely unworkable. So you actually think that through. So someone makes an allegation uh, of that. Uh, I was walking to work and um, a man walked past me and said uh, something which I find objectionable. Okay, so how are we going to identify that person? We have to do CCTV trolls, potentially, even if you do a CCTV troll, you're, you're not going, you know, you're not going to be able to identify that person. Um, I just can see it as being, it's one of those things that signs Signs, signs as if you're doing something to protect women and just just to make it clear no one wants to see women being protected more than I do as the father of two girls and a husband um, to my wife and you know lots of really really good uh, female friends out there and colleagues and everything so you know it's not for me it's not about whether you want to protect women or not I think it's just about living in the real world and, and asking yourself whether uh, bringing in an offence like that into an, a statute book that's already rammed with legislation that, that's almost unenforceable is, is just, just for, of, of a form of virtue signalling that will have almost nil impact on the safety of women. You know, by all means, uh, let's call this behaviour out and challenge it and we could have awareness campaigns to make that sort of behaviour as unacceptable as, for example, smoking in a public place or wearing a seatbelt or all these kind of um, campaigns where you can challenge unacceptable behaviour that has an impact on other people. But let's not kind of criminalise it because, um, you know, as I say, the police have got quite enough to do. They're not even able to do the job that they're being paid to do at the moment, never mind adding another load of demand on top of it. So yeah, there you go. Make of that what you will. Right, let's get into the interview with Carol. Right, everyone, uh, this week, I've got the absolute pleasure of chatting to Carol Rogers, who is a first person we've had on the podcast who has got an ology. Um, <laughs> And Carol, Carol, welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Hi, hi, thanks for having me. Great. So you describe, like, so you briefly introduce yourself and what ology you've got, because um, you've got, I don't have any ologies, so you've got probably loads. 
Okay, so I'm Carol Rogers and my ology is biology okay. and I use that as a forensic biologist. Right, okay, so you're a first um, in many ways because now I'm trying to rack in my brains, this will probably be episode 70 and I don't think, to my shame, I'm not sure we've any had anybody from Police Scotland yet, so okay. if, that's, if, I, if I've got that wrong and I've already spoken from Police Scotland, then many apologies, but so that, that might be a first. Second first is we haven't spoken to a forensic scientist okay. yet, so that's good. And uh, forensic biology. So, so you you're currently employed by who is your sort of current employer, so to speak? So in Scotland, it's the Scottish Police Authority right. employ forensic scientists and are responsible for forensic science. So they are basically the governance for Police Scotland. Right. But they are in charge of forensic services and the reason for that was we used to be police run labs and it was seen as a challenge to impartiality mm -hmm. if you were employed by the police so by being employed by the police authority that way there's what they like to call a sterile corridor so a yeah. bit of a distance between us and the police force which mm. is to create more of a impression of imp impartiality okay and uh, when did you first start working with the police so I was employed originally by Strathclyde Police mm -hmm. in 1998. Oh, bloody hell. I know. <laughs> you did, you did it a while then. Yeah, 25 years in April. Really? Flipping mm -hmm. out. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, so listen, let's go right back then before you even started and explore, you know, what was it that brought you into forensic science in the first place? Okay, television programme. Right. So long before CSI and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. I was 12 and there was a programme called Indelible Evidence. Mm -hmm. And the episode I watched was a farmer who had killed his wife and injured himself, phoned the police and said, someone's broken into the house, murdered my wife, tried to murder me. And the forensic biologists went out they did the blood pattern analysis and said, no, this, this isn't right. Blood pattern doesn't make sense. And I was watching this thinking, this is amazing. And that was really what started it. And this was before CSI, before DNA was a thing. Mm -hmm. um, so good old fashioned blood pattern analysis, forensic science, that was it, got me hooked. Right, okay. So obviously um, there are, as, as, as a lot of the cops who listen to this know, there are different sort of branches, I suppose, of forensic science. Um, but obviously you went down the biology route. Mm -hmm. So what did you have to do in order to, did you have to go to university and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so degree in biology mm -hmm. and then a master's degree in forensic biology. So right. back when I was at uni, you couldn't do an undergraduate degree in forensic science. They're now everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but you had to do a good old fashioned science degree and then specialise by doing your master's and you had to have a master's then to actually even get an interview to get the job. Right. OK, so um, obviously, whenever you came into the organisation, so we're talking about 1998. So mm -hmm. I mean, I joined the police back in 1989, but certainly I do recall that you know, even right through the 90s, uh, the organisation looked and felt an awful lot different then than it does today mm -hmm. I mean, what are your kind of early recollection of recollections of coming into the police as an organization um i loved it so it was strathclyde police that employed me and i worked out of the police headquarters 
in mm. Pitt Street, which is right in the centre of Glasgow. Mm. And that's where the forensic lab was at the time. And I, I just I just love that you felt part of something. Mm. Um, it, it's what I always wanted to do working in Glasgow. You're never going to be short of, of murders and, and crime. Mm. And I just thought, you know, we worked really, really well together. There was a great relationship with the police. And, and I, I just loved that whole thing of being part of that whole criminal justice organisation. Loved it. So how much in those early days, um, were you stuck in a lab somewhere or did you actually have much face-to-face -face contact with cops? So for the first two years, you're in the lab and you're kind of hidden away. So that's your training period. Mm -hmm. You're not let loose at crime scenes. You're not allowed to go to court. Nothing until right. you've done at least two years and you're deemed competent and you're signed off as right. a forensic scientist. So for the first couple of years, it's very much lab-based. Don't really know any cops. Don't come face-to-face -face with them. Then I started training to go on call. And as part of that, I got sent to Tully Allen, which is the police college up in mm. Scotland. I got sent there for a week on a crime scene manager's course. Yeah. Like I was about 26 year old. And I was terrified because I'd never really dealt with cops before. And I remember mm. saying to my friends, well, this is going to be the most boring week ever. Um, <clears throat> unknowing what police colleges can be. <laughs> Wrong. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and, it, and it was actually great. Because although I didn't learn an awful lot about what my job would be at a crime scene, that all came with actually doing the job, it did allow me to see cops as real people. I probably taught you how to drink as well. It was, yes, it was. I think it was <laughs> the European finals or something. There was some big football tournament on. So, um, God, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I have to say they made me very welcome. I was the only female in the, the course. Right. Um, there was only two civvies on the course right. and they were great and it did as I said it sort of opened my eyes to the fact that you know cops are actually real people mm. they're not just there to get you into trouble no. and it, it was really really helpful because after that course when I started going out on call a lot of these guys were crime scene managers and I'd kind of established that sort of relationship mm -hmm. and that was really nice but that yeah, was my yeah. first real experience of cops was at a course <laughs> Yeah, it was a funny, it was a funny old, uh, funny old time, wasn't it? Because back in the day, as I recall, quite a lot of um, uh, police officers actually worked as sort of crime scene managers, and uh, and then that role gradually, gradually, gradually became more and more civilianized, I suppose. But certainly, I can recall a time when you'd have your scenes of crime officer, but then on the more serious investigations, you'd have probably a DS who mm. might be. Uh, a sort of like a, a scene coordinator. I mean, how did it how did it work back in those days? It's still very like that in Scotland. Is it? So we still have crime scene managers who are DSs. Right. Um, so any real major incident, the crime scene manager will be present. And it varies a little bit depending on where you are in mm. Scotland. So Police Scotland only came into being a few years ago. So the legacy forces worked quite differently. But certainly in the West, the crime scene manager was very involved at the crime scene. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they would help you strip the body. They would corroborate the samples that you were taking. Um, mm -hmm. They would go to the debrief beforehand and be part of the strategy meeting, etc. They'd be responsible for seizing what we call productions. I think you guys call exhibits. Mm -hmm. So the police are still very much involved, although right. they are now looking to bring in more coordinator roles that are senior crime officers, very experienced mm -hmm. senior crime officers. But right. yeah, we still have cops at the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, 
yeah we did um we did have a uh i'm just trying i'm just racking my brains this is terrible isn't it it's showing my age now and i'm <laughs> racking my brains trying to think we've talked so much in previous podcasts about various complex crimes or complex scenes of crime particularly around um you know ct incidents and mm. uh you know major incidents etc and and disaster victim we had a really interesting um episode with lee warmby an ex-colleague of mine who who led on disaster victim identification and you know so it's a it's a real those kind of major incidents and complex crimes it's very much a team effort isn't it yeah absolutely absolutely and what you'll get is you'll get the scientist who goes to court who gets all the attention mm. um but it is it's such a massive team effort and you know some crime scenes i've been at for example, I was at a crime scene where the body was under floorboards mm. and I had to sample the body, et cetera. So the crime scene manager wrote the labels, gave me what I need to do the samples. Mm. Then I would take the sample, pass it up through the hatch in the floor. Mm. Crime scene manager would label it, package it, et cetera. So it's such a massive, massive bit mm. of teamwork. Yeah. Um, and like yeah. I said, it's the crime scene manager is still very much a cop up here. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we'll come on to talk about that later on, the, the Peter Tobin investigation, mm -hmm. which I think is really fascinating. And you certainly got quite a lot of media attention, didn't you, around that yeah. time? Um, really, really um, disturbing, um, but, but, but equally incredibly challenging investigation, I think. So go back to sort of your early, your early days then. Um, mm -hmm. What are the sort of, in those early days, what were the sort of memorable types of jobs that you would get involved in and, and how often did those jobs come along? Um, well, so back in the early days when I started going on call, so sort of late 90s into the 2000s, Glasgow's murder rate was ridiculous. Mm. Um, we were getting about 80, 90 murders a year in Strathclyde alone. Mm -hmm. So you're on call one week in five, one week in four, one week in five, and it wasn't unusual to get two, three murders. Um, I think the most I ever had in a weekend was five. Bloody hell. But yeah, so you were pretty fresh out the packet. Mm. And you definitely got your experience really, really quickly um, mm. because we had a lot of knife crime, a lot of murders. And that rate has dropped dramatically yeah. in the last sort of decade. And, but definitely back then, it was it was a very, very busy job. You were out a lot. So um, would you generally, when you actually went out initially, uh, assuming, let's assume that it was a job where uh, the, the victim is dead, uh, mm -hmm. has been sort of confirmed dead by doctor, paramedic or whatever. And in other words, they haven't been scooped up by an ambulance, taken to hospital and died mm -hmm. at the ambulance. They're at, they're at the scene. Generally speaking, when you get to the scene, the, the body is still in situ, is it? Yeah. Right, yeah. OK. So just, just for the benefit of people listening to this who uh, have kind of a bit of an idea, maybe from watching a bit of telly or uh, having read a few books or something like that. I mean, generally, talk, talk me through what, your what you would do typically so you go to a scene of a murder let's okay let's describe it it's a it's a, at a two up two down address in a fairly nondescript street and you go in there and uh, the victim has been uh, clearly bludgeoned to death uh, in a fairly um brutal way and you get called so okay. state state your actions okay so when you're arriving at the scene your remit in a case like this will be to recover any samples from the body, any trace evidence from the body that could link the body to the killer. But also, if you've got a bludgeoning to death, you're going to have some really full on blood patterns 
So your job is also to look at the blood patterns, to try and recreate what has happened, to give that intelligence to the police. Also, you're looking for any signs that your suspect has bled, any blood patterns that could indicate your suspect, obviously trying to get a DNA profile from your suspect. So I always go in and have a good look around first. I like to get my head around what the scene looks like as a whole. Um, once I've got my head around that, I tend to move to sampling the body. Sometimes that's the best way because you can actually then get the body moved out of the scene. And sometimes you need to do that to have the space to work. So by sampling the body, what I'm doing is trying to get any trace evidence from the body. So hairs, fibers, you'd be considering glass, paint, depending on the circumstances, and obviously the DNA. Mm -hmm. So you work methodically, taking your samples. Um, the pathologist will probably be present. It depends on the murder, but if the pathologist is present, you work together. We would recover our trace evidence and then they would do anything they wanted to do with the body. Once we'd recovered the evidence, body would go in a body bag and be removed from the scene. Mm -hmm. After that, the next part would be sort of mapping out the blood pattern. So just, to, just to pause you there, typically, mm -hmm. how long would that process take that you've just described? Um, it really depends on what you're sampling, but if you're taking all your hairs and fibres, all your DNA swabs, your nail scrapings, etc., a couple of hours. Right, okay. A couple so of hours. Um, you might choose at that point as well to strip the body. If you've got a deceased that's fully closed and they have been bleeding, you might want to take the clothing off so you're not going to get any further contamination of blood on the clothing because you're going to want to look at that clothing for trace evidence further down the line or you're going to consider blood patterns. So you don't want anything that's going to contaminate it. So once the body's dealt with, um, it's really looking at the blood in the house. So the first thing would be to look at the blood patterns. If it's a bludgeoning, you're going to expect what we call impact spatter, which is lots of, to be colloquial, sort of sprays of blood, blood spots. Mm -hmm. We'd be looking at that kind of thing. Um, and then you'd be looking elsewhere in the house. Where has the assault happened? Is there any other signs of disturbance? I would always consider taps on sinks, baths, et cetera. Has a suspect tried to clean up before they've left? Have they been bleeding themselves and tried to wash their hands? So dilute blood and taps could be very telling. You want to consider things like light switches, door handles. Has your suspect left the scene and they're bleeding and they've left their blood or have they left a fingerprint in the deceased blood as they've left the scene? So it's, it's considering the trace evidence on the body, the blood patterns to recreate the scene mm -hmm. and anything that your suspect may have left behind. Okay, so in terms of, um, you know, the old school fingerprint process, does someone else do that or do you do that yeah. as well? So we're recovering really body fluids and anything that we can get DNA from. But the fingerprint examination is done by scene examination. So they will powder or do whatever technique they're going to do to enhance any potential fingerprints. And they will recover the fingerprints to take back for the fingerprint experts to look at. So as a biologist, you're not getting involved okay. in that. Although you might during your examination, say, oh, I think that's a fingerprint in blood. And you'd get someone over to look at that and to enhance it and to sample or to lift it. But I'm not a fingerprint okay. expert by any stretch of so, imagination. So really, in terms of the primacy or um, getting first dibs, I suppose, of the crime scene, 
that's you then so not no yeah. one else is going to start doing anything until you've done what you need to do is that would that be correct yeah i mean in that scenario yes you would you would have the scene recorded mm -hmm. so photographs 360 footage as well um videos so everything's recorded before you start moving things about so your scene examiner would do that process you would go in and do your work in conjunction with the pathologist if necessary once we'd finished our work and taken all our samples at that point the fingerprint um, enhancement would take place so your scene of crime guys would go back in and do the the fingerprint work okay so if it's a ballistic scene so we've we've had a shooting and um we, we've got a we've got a deceased person on the in the living room and there are signs of firearms residue or discharge or bullets buried in walls or whatever that's the scenes of crime examiner who will deal with that rather than yourself then that would be the ballistic scientist so, so that's another person. Yeah. So we have a, a team um, who are ballistic forensic scientists, and that is their area of expertise. So if I ever got called to a shooting, I would be going along to take samples from the body or to look at blood patterns, but they would be doing all the ballistic work, considering FDRs, considering cartridge recovery, etc. So I would very much work with them, but probably be led more by them in that right. scene because that is much more their field of expertise. Right, that's interesting because um, I didn't I didn't know that. I've got to say, I mean, I do. So, I, yeah, if I sound as if I'm asking really really stupid or questions, <laughs> it's more just for the benefit of everybody listening, you know, because it's yeah. not everybody. Some and people listening to this will have been murder SIOs for many years and will understand all of this stuff, but lots of people kind of aren't, you know. And Scotland's different as well. So, you know, what you've experienced in your career with forensic scientists down south will be different to, to how we, we work in Scotland. In Scotland, the scientist is very much more hands-on. Mm. We probably get called out to quite a bit more. Um, our senior crime guys will get called out to, to a lot more. Um, it's a different system we work in. There's not financial constraints the same right. as there is in England. So Okay, so so you've done your bit then. You've gone along and you've, you've taken your samples and you've, your swabs and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you're happy that you've done everything you reasonably can do at that particular crime scene before then handing it over to other members of the team or whatever. Um, what happens to all of those samples then? So the samples will be given to the police. Um, we take them in double-ended swabs and they go in breathable bags. So the samples will basically dry out in the bags themselves. So they don't need to be frozen, etc. cetera. Um, so the samples will be given to the police and they will all be lodged by the police through their production book. Okay. Um, and then presumably in sort of slower time, then someone who would have been a version of you in your earlier part of your career back in the lab would then be picking up those samples and doing something with them i'm assuming yeah yeah i mean we try to follow up our own crime scene so if i was out at a murder and the samples from the murder were going to be quite crucial to the case i would want to be involved in that case because it makes such an easier job in court if you can take it from the very beginning all the way through. In terms of avoiding the suggestion of cross-contamination, do you mean? Or yeah, just, in just terms the knowledge. Of consistency? Just the knowledge, yeah. I mean, if you've got a scientist who can speak to the crime scene, speak to the lab examination, speak to the DNA result in court, it's just, I think it's much better for the jury 
Right. Um, and also, if you're doing the lab work and you've been at the crime scene, you've got expectations in your head of what the blood patterns are going to look like, what you're mm. expecting to be transferred onto the clothing. So we do try to, to follow our crime scenes through if possible. And right. that's something in Scotland that we are very proud of. We call it our crime scene to court model in that a scientist will take the thing the whole way through. Okay. So um, obviously one of the biggest issues around crime scene management is avoiding uh, cross-contamination across potentially multiple scenes. Um, so let's describe, let's imagine we've got um, a crime scene one, which is the two up to down that I've just described that you've been to, and then um, another scene uh, say two days later, where a suspect has committed a second offence potentially at a different location, mm -hmm. um, and then there may be an arrest of someone involving, um, you know, taking clothing, um, swabs, etc., whilst they're in custody, all of that kind of stuff. So, just describe um, how much of a an issue. Uh, trying to prevent that cross contamination is because clearly you need to if you've got if you've got a if you've got a very complex linked series of offences with lots of scenes potentially a number of different suspects at different locations but there's there's not a never a never ending supply of forensic scientists are there well, no that's what I'm getting at yeah I mean we we do call for a week so. I would be covering the whole of Strathclyde region for that week. That that would be it. That would be me. Um, so if there was something a couple of days later, the chances are it would be me if it was out of hours that would go to that. However, I mean, we counteract the contamination by PPE. So everyone is dressed in full PPE. And that would be removed on leaving scene number one. The mm. first thing I do whenever I come home from a crime scene is always have a shower mm. um, and change. So a couple of days later, you know, you would have showered, you would have changed. When you went into the next scene, you would be in completely different PPE. So your kit would all have been washed down, etc. So we do everything to eliminate mm. um, cross-contamination between scenes. It's really, really hard, though, isn't it? I mean, given that DNA... Uh, particularly as this, the, the, the methods of, of recovering minute trace particles of DNA now have become so unbelievably sensitive, isn't it? So, mm. you know, potentially if you've got, um, you know, exhibits relating to a suspect who's been arrested and then you've also, uh, you're on an ongoing, so over maybe a week-long period, you're also dealing with exhibits that have been recovered from crime scenes trying mm -hmm. to ensure that there is absolutely no possibility of the suggestion of, you know, you've been handling the suspects, uh, you know, items that were taken on arrest, for example, and then maybe two days later, you're going back and doing further examinations on stuff that was retrieved from the crime scene. And mm -hmm. then lo and behold, um, you find some DNA relating to the suspect you know, you know, so it's, mm. I, I can just imagine it must be a, a massive headache sometimes trying to make sure that that can never happen, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a huge thing in our work now. You know, when I started, it was blood grouping, so it didn't really matter. Mm. And as I've grown up throughout my career, DNA and the sensitivity of DNA has become better and better. So, yeah, within the lab, you would never, ever have the suspect and the complainer's clothing examined in the same room 
ever. Mm. You would always do it in different rooms and preferably by different practitioners. Mm. Um, and the same at the crime scene, um, you know, your PPE is absolutely key. Hmm. changing your gloves regularly, changing your PPE. And if you thought there was going to be an issue, then it would simply be a case of you'd have to shut the thing down to the next day and get someone else to go out. Hmm. If hmm. you're wanting to minimize that as something yeah. that could be brought up in court. So yeah, it's absolutely number one consideration is making sure you are not contaminating anything. Yeah. I mean, it's often, as you know, as you know, Carol, these, once it gets to court, um, you know, the, the defense will go into all of that side of things in microscopic detail, trying to find opportunities to suggest to at least sow the seed of doubt in the mind of the jury, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So yeah. let's talk about court then. Uh, what were your early experiences of going to court? How did you find that? Uh, terrifying. I still do, still get very nervous about court. The very first court case I went to, um, it was on blood grouping and I had to stand up and say that that blood group was found in 36% of the population. <laughs> like mm. that was a really big deal, you know, and now you're going and giving mm. figures like a billion. Um, but court is something, it's, a, it's an art that you learn. Um, and I think with experience comes confidence. And although you're always nervous to go to court, you learn better how to deal with situations, how to answer questions, mm. um, how, to, how to keep calm. Hmm. Um, and not react but it, hmm. it takes a lot of years what's the uh, what's the longest you've spent in the witness box two and a half days right okay what was what job was that so that was in the Tobin trial Tobin so two and a half days got out of court got on a train and then had to go to court in Glasgow for a day and a half on a different murder hmm. so if you discount the break of a couple of hours over lunch it was essentially four days <laughs> oh, yeah stressful um so as as we've sort of touched on that then um let's let's talk about that job because it's a really fascinating job very disturbing um peter tobin so you you know the circumstances of that job better than most people so mm -hmm. just describe what that job was all about in terms of the the background to it and the uh, how you then came to be involved in it, i suppose okay so it was my call week and it started off as a missing person inquiry and a Polish student called Angelika Kluk had gone missing. She'd been working in a church in Scotland in the summer to raise money. She was a, a, a language student and she was living and working in this church. Mm -hmm. And in the church, there was a handyman called um, Patrick McLaughlin. Um, Angelika went missing on the Sunday night and her body was found underneath the floorboards in the church on Friday evening. And at the same time she went missing, shortly after that, Patrick McLaughlin also went missing. And as the investigation progressed, the police became aware, although we didn't know at the time, the police became aware that Patrick McLaughlin was actually a convicted sex offender called Peter Tobin. Mm. And obviously, we're thinking, oh, this is a missing person inquiry. We don't always get involved in them, but obviously they had their real fears about how this was going to, to end, and they were absolutely right. Mm -hmm. So so he had, my understanding is, he had previously been in prison, hadn't he, for serious sexual offences against girls. Mm -hmm. um, can you remember how long he'd been out of prison before that? Not very long. He'd, he'd been in prison, I think, for nine years. Um, he had raped 
two young girls, they were about 14, 15, raped them and left them in a flat with the gas on. So it was, he tried to kill them basically, but one of them managed to escape, raised the alarm. And I'm mm -hmm. sure it was about nine years he got in prison for that. I don't think he was out for terribly long before he came right. back up to Scotland. And So he came out with a, using a false name or an assumed mm -hmm. name. Yeah. Um, and so how did, um, obviously she'd, she'd been missing for the best part of, well, nearly a week, I suppose, five days before the body was found. Um, how did the, how was the body found? Was it that they used um, search dogs or was it sort of just a very methodical search that found, that found her? It was a, a methodical search by Pulsa. Um, they, they'd searched the church and the accommodation. There was no sign of foul, foul play, no sign of the body. And then on the Friday, the Pulsa team went in and one of them noticed a carpet tile was slightly squint. Hmm. And he moved the carpet tile and that revealed a trapdoor um, to underneath the floorboards and moved the trapdoor and Angelica's body was directly under the hatch. Right. Okay. So, um, so obviously you get called on your own call week, lucky you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, so what, what was, uh, when, you, when you turned up at that scene, um, uh, just sort of talk us through, uh, you know, how you dealt with that. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, pretty, pretty awful scenario. Yeah, so before we went to the scene, we went to the nearest police office to have a briefing and I was able to view video footage and still photography that had been taken of the hatch. Mm -hmm. So I could see the hatch and I could see Angelica's body beneath it. And the first thing I noticed was that her trousers were undone mm -hmm. and she was obscured by a tarpaulin, but I could see her hands were bound with cable ties. There was blood on her hands. So you're looking at it thinking that this is probably a sexually motivated assault and she's going to have some sort of injuries that have bled. Mm -hmm. um, so my immediate reaction was I don't want her body moved. Hmm. Um, if, if there's blood, then that potentially is going to contaminate any evidence on her clothing. And yeah. also if she has been sexually assaulted and there's any semen within hmm. her body, as soon as you move her body, that redistributes and that really limits the conclusions we can give when we're looking at if intercourse and death occurred about the same time. Right. So I didn't want her body moved but she's underneath this tiny trap door. Um, it was bisected by a beam. So the initial chat was where we could cut the beam mm. and widen the, the access, but that would have contaminated her body because it was directly beneath the beam. Mm. So then there was talk about um, cut a hole in the floor and we can access um, through the floor nearby, but that was a big health and safety issue. And so just, and just just for clarity, how deep was the void under the under the floorboards? Is it was it quite a, a shallow void or was yeah. it quite deep? Quite it was shallow? probably about three or four foot. Right. So it wasn't deep. So there was quite a lot of debate about how we were going to approach this um, because I was absolutely adamant I wanted to go down there. Um, and I think the initial reaction was we'll cut the floorboards, we'll get her body out and sample her in the mortuary. Hmm. but that was not going to work forensically. So um, the SIO was great and he took that all on board and that's what we decided to do. And um, so I looked at the hatch and just thought, I'm just going to have to go for this. Hmm. So 
I went down the the hatch um, and it was it was that narrow that I had a pager on my belt mm-hmm. and the pager jammed and stopped me going down. Oh, so I God. had to unhook the pager and wriggle it down into my crime scene suit. So it sat on the ankle of my suit the whole time I did the work. That's how little of a, a space there was. Mm. Um, so went down there and there was also a photographer went down as well and he never gets oh, any credit but obviously it's all got to be recorded and photographed and how far how sorry how far was she from the entrance to the hatch so was she right underneath it or was she some distance away right underneath it right okay right underneath it so what we did was um we we took 360 footage from underneath the hatch and we put lighting down and we put tread plates down, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, mm. sort of aluminium squares, about 50 centimetres squared that you, you sit on. Mm. And that stopped us from disturbing the ground that she was lying on. So basically, I just lowered myself down onto the tread plate. And then it was a case of just methodically taking the samples. So I would say to the crime scene manager, I'm going to say swab our hands. Mm. I need swabs, I need water, I need labels. He'd pass that down, I'd take the samples. I'd say this is a swab from her left hand. He would write that, seal it, get that checked. We'd do the same for the right, the, the left hand. And so it went on until I'd taken all the samples that mm-hmm. I wanted to take. And then it was a case of stripping her um, so we could seize all our clothing as well and preserve that for forensic examination. And that's presumably uh, at the best of times, that's going to be really difficult. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've certainly removed clothing from um, deceased crime victims and and it's really it's really difficult get, yeah. sometimes very really difficult getting the clothes off because of um maybe rigor mortis has set in mm-hmm. or whatever um and without i don't want to ask questions that are you know on uh, sort of gratuitously graphic put it that way but um i imagine that must have been very difficult to do that in such a confined space yeah yeah mm. really really difficult yeah so um, so once you've done everything, uh, obviously, then she can be then removed and taken to the um, po- the mortuary. Um, well, when, well, first of all, I wanted right. her intimate samples taken. Right. Um, and I can't do that as a forensic scientist. We can't take intimate samples, only external body samples. Oh, really? Why is, why is that? That's interesting. Got to be a medical doctor. Right. It takes the internal samples. So the pathologist did that at the scene. Um, oh, right. Okay. okay. So that we could sample the semen that was within our body um, before it was redistributed by taking it to the mortuary. These samples can be taken again at mortuary, but it's always good to capture it at the scene if possible. So you've had to get a pathologist down into that area as yeah. well as you yeah. and the, oh, flip neck. So, oh yeah. gosh, I can't, well, I can't even imagine, imagine it's, it's, you know, I really massively take my hat off to you. I take my hat off to anybody who does that because it's just a, it's the stuff of horror films, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so the pathologist is there, and you get her, get her away um, to the, the uh, mortuary. Um, how does he? Uh, presumably, there's a manhunt put into place mm-hmm. in order to locate Tobin. Mm-hmm. Um, how long was it after her body was found before he was finally apprehended? A few days. Um, so we. We took the samples from her body into the lab on the Saturday morning, established there was semen on the swabs, got a DNA profile, searched a Scottish DNA database and got nothing. Um, and then first thing on the Monday morning, searched a national DNA database 
and got the the match for Peter Tobin. So okay. that confirmed to the police that's who they were looking for. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a few days later, um, a nurse in a hospital um, recognised their patient as Peter Tobin from media footage. And they phoned in and said, we think this patient is um, Peter Tobin from the, the news coverage. Um, and an officer from Strathclyde went down, dressed up as a, a medic, Hmm. and went into the ward and clarified that, yes, that was, in fact, Peter Tobin. Had, had he sustained injuries or had he fallen ill? Or why was he in hospital? This is his MO. Um, oh, right. it was they, they believe that once he's committed a crime, he will then check himself into hospital. Right, OK. So, um, so obviously, uh, what was the cause of death um, in that, in that s situation? Um, she had... Head injuries, blunt force trauma, but also she had sustained, sustained multiple stab wounds as well. So right, really, just horrific, really yeah, horrific. Absolutely. So, so he uh, he obviously got found guilty of of that offence, and there was quite a lot of reporting at the time, wasn't it? Where you mm -hmm. your account, uh, ver a version of the account that you've just given was kind of reported in the media, wasn't it? But um, mm -hmm. um, and there was a suggestion that this was unlikely very unlikely to be the very the first time he had actually killed someone was that was that ever was that ever pursued or bottomed out in terms of other offenses that were linked to him sort of other historic offenses linked to him yeah so after after the conviction the the police at strathclyde created a timeline to show where he'd lived and um, when he'd been in out of jail uh, and just basically mapped out his life and they they realized that he'd been down living down south in sussex mm. and they became interested in him um for the disappearance of dinah mcnichol who was a, a young woman who had gone missing hitchhiking and they also established that he had lived in bathgate round about the time that a girl called vicky hamilton had gone missing um, mm. in bathgate so they went down to where he'd lived down south um to dig up the garden Mm. expecting to find Dinah McNichol and found Vicky Hamilton's body. Oh, God. And Dinah McNichol's body. Oh, bloody hell. Well, um, a good bit of detective work, then. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, so then they went back to the house in Bathgate and they found a knife that mm. had tissue on it that they obtained a DNA profile matching Vicky Hamilton. And I think at that point she'd been missing for about 18 years. Um, oh, God. So he was he was eventually convicted of the murder of Vicky Hamilton and the, and the murder of Dinah McNichol. So that right. made him officially a serial killer. Oh, bloody hell. Well, yeah. fantastic, fantastic work. And, you you know, of course, in these jobs, uh, the, the question will always be how many, how many more, I suppose, yeah. isn't it? You'll, you'll probably probably never know, will we really? But has no. he ever cooperated with the police through any, any of these investigations? No, um, the, the police tried to build some kind of rapport with him and visit him in prison to see if he would admit anything and he, he never ever did and then he died um a month or so ago oh did he yeah he died in prison about a month ago um he always denied it he was never ever going to admit it hmm. um but the feeling is if he hasn't murdered before he's definitely committed rapes and sexual assaults before absolutely yeah, yeah. well he's gone to a greater a greater court than any of yeah. us can uh, can yeah. sort of, um, offer him. So, so in terms of in terms of your uh, your continued career after that, obviously that was a a pretty shocking case. But then by this by the way you describe things, 
these sort of jobs um, are pretty much everything. Pretty much everything you deal with is pretty grim and gruesome, isn't it? Yeah. So let's talk about the impact. If you're okay um, mm-hmm. talking about the impact of all of that on you and people like you, I suppose. And and I've talked. Uh, you know, I've been very open um, in the book I wrote and in the podcast. I've been very open about some of the you know psychological struggles I've had um periodically you know through mm-hmm. my career some of which are to do with work some of which are you know maybe a combination of home and work but obviously if you're dealing with difficult stuff at work if there's stuff going on at home that is also difficult and challenging that can make work much harder can't it yeah I mean what how have you found dealing with these types of jobs kind of pretty much day in and day out does that come at a does that come at a cost for you? It's funny because if you'd asked me this a couple of years ago, I'd have said absolutely no way. Mm. Um, you know, back in the day, there wasn't the same well-being, awareness, etc. And you'll mm. know yourself, you know. Um, I was lucky I had really, really good line managers who are very experienced scientists. So if I had a really horrendous scene, I could talk to them, they could empathize, they could understand. So there was that release mechanism. Mm. Nowadays, the police, SPA, are much, much better at providing support and reducing the amount of murders people are exposed to. There's a lot more people do the job now, whereas back in the day, it was repeated exposure. But um, a couple of years ago, I took an interim promotion, Mm. which took me into management and away from science. Right. Um, and I finished that in a couple of weeks time. So when I first took the job, I only took it because it was interim mm. because I, I didn't feel ready to let go of the science, mm. but I needed to find that out. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought I'm going to really miss being on call. I'm going to really miss my science. And I haven't missed being on call. Right. Um, and I've found now the thought of going back on call or the thought of going back out and dealing with things mm. actually makes me feel quite, quite anxious. anxious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think it's because when you, you deal with it day in, day out for over 20 mm, years, mm. it becomes normal. And you just see that as, as normal. That's what my job is. Mm. I mean, you take a step back from it, you realize it's not normal to see yeah, that no. kind of stuff. It <laughs> no, really not, isn't. No, not at all. No. And, um, and although I would say, um, I haven't experienced any negative adverse effects from it. Hmm. I would say that I've probably reached or reaching a saturation point for it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think personally, um, you know, I dealt with a lot of a lot of uh, death over the years. You know, as a lot of police officers do, and uh, you know, particularly when I was a detective, um, I was on a child abuse unit. I dealt with a lot of dead kids, and certainly, um, yeah, people talk about flashbacks and stuff. I um i'm not sure i experience flashbacks um but i do um occasionally think about a job that i dealt with mm-hmm. and you, you the, it pops into your head for no particular reason at the weirdest of times and you just think whoa um and you uh you just push that away i just don't know i don't want to i don't want to think about that because yeah. not i've no idea why i'm thinking about that right now um it's uh, you know very strange isn't it the way the the way the the brain works and everything but mm-hmm. uh, they know you I think you're right that I mean I I always tell the I always tell the story about when I was a DI running a child abuse unit uh, quite a few years ago 
uh, we used to have to have clinical supervision from the um, psychiatric nurse who would come and speak to my whole team uh, and would speak to me. And then she would say at the end of it, and it was always like so predictable. She'd always say, oh, Ian, um, I'm a bit worried about your team because they're all cracking up. And, uh, and, and if you don't mind me saying, um, you're showing quite serious signs of stress as well. And I was like saying, no shit, Sherlock. You know, it's like, it's like because it's yeah. a really stressful job. Yeah. That's what that's why. And 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 I can't see anything that you can do realistically to make the job less stressful because mm-hmm. the kind of caseload isn't going to get any less. Um, I'm not going to get any more people on the team to manage the caseload. So over to you. What do you suggest? You know? And of course, the answer to that is always, uh, well, I'll get back to you on that one, you know? I mean, do you, do you get clinical supervision in the role? We don't. No, we don't. I mean, the, really? Gosh. the, the onus is very much on the first line manager to sort of right. monitor that person, ask that person, you know, how do you feel about that scene and sort of gauge the reactions. Mm. And we have processes in place to support someone who's struggling and they can self-refer or the manager can refer them but mm. we don't have any sort of regular assessment to make sure that you know we're coping or we're able it's really sort of the onus is on you or your manager to spot the signs mm. and have ask seen, for help uh, have you seen colleagues over the years kind of um for want of a better word cracking up with this kind of stuff um i've seen people very very upset and i've known people to be off sick with ptsd mm. after particular scenes um, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely people that have been affected by it. Absolutely. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, you know, again, I've said I've said in the past and previous conversations I've had with people on the podcast that fundamentally, um, when you go into these types of occupations, uh, you've just got to accept, I suppose, that you're going to see stuff that's going to be pretty awful, mm. and. Um, I'm not sure that I'm, I don't I don't think there is a solution quite honestly I, I think no. I think you're either um you kind of accept that that's just I mean some of the stories oh my god I remember when uh, when I was speaking to, when I was in the counterterrorism I did I was in counterterrorism for um a long time and uh some of the forensic uh um teams these were police officers who worked with the people like yourself they would go out to uh, the aftermath of things like seven seven explosions. Mm. Um, um, there was one guy who used to uh, he, he used to get quite um, kind of upset when he would talk about this because he he had to go to one scene where he had to get ch- a cherry picker to pick bits of people out of the mm. trees. You know, yeah. um, bloody hell! You know, I mean, it's mm. not the sort of stuff that you can easily sort of no. put to put to one side, can you? But no. Anyway, we'll move on to slightly more cheerful, <laughs> more cheerful subjects. So you said you're coming to the end of your um, sort of interim managerial role mm-hmm. um, and you're not quite sure what you're going to do next. Is that, have you got, is that, are you, are you definitely going to go back to your old role or are you sort of thinking, mm, I'm not sure about that now? Yeah, I mean, my, my old role um, has been slightly changed, but it's, it's a lead scientist role. Mm-hmm. So it's much more about training people, bringing people on, um, partnership working, um, sort of promoting the best science. Mm-hmm. And I've already been doing quite a lot of work with the Scottish government 
um, about improving services for rape victims and, mm -hmm. and uh, victims of sexual assault. So that kind of thing is brilliant mm -hmm. because you're now using your experience um, and able to to apply it in a slightly different way and yeah. actually make things better instead of mop up the aftermath. And yeah. that's been really good. So that's something I'm really looking forward to to going mm -hmm. back to. So yes, I'll be going back to science. I mm -hmm. definitely am a scientist through and through. Mm -hmm not so much it won't be the hands-on dirty work yeah, that's yeah, for the yeah. youngsters yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the young people yeah. can do that but <laughs> it's nice to be there and have the experience to bring them on and help yeah. them yeah and well, know if they've got exactly. a horrendous murder you know what it's like you could go and speak to them and, yeah. and, and look after them so yeah science but from a distance <laughs> yeah yeah and that's the thing isn't it i mean um you're in a you're in a, such a an amazing position now aren't you to be able to um oops sorry i was looking back at my previous podcast episodes because i, I needed to remind myself of which one i was thinking of because it's relevant to what we're talking about um there's a real opportunity there for you to work in do you do any work with in academia in terms of as a teaching kind of role lecturing um we we do we, we're we're now starting to forge much stronger bonds with academia Right. Um, because academia obviously can do all the blue sky thinking and, and yeah. bring on the new technology, but we can act as a sort of filter to this is the kind of stuff we need in real life. This is the kind of stuff that's going to support policing and yeah, forensic yeah. science. Yeah. So, yeah, we do sometimes go and, and do lectures and sort of guest speakers, and, and we are really encouraging stronger bonds between academia because I think between the operational side and academia, we can really, really drive forward forensic science. Yes, uh, it's definitely, um, there we go, um, just find the episode, I think you should listen to this because I think you'd find it really interesting. So I spoke to um, uh, Bob Gallagher, uh, MBE, if you listen to this, Bob, I got the MBE in. Um, so Bob Bob was a um, forensic uh, scene manager and he was the first on scene from a forensic point of view at the Manchester Arena oh, God, um, yeah. explosion. And that's an interesting one for you to listen mm, to. Absolutely. Um, as, as you admitted to me before we started chatting that you are, um, <laughs> you have no idea what podcasts are or how no. to find them. So I shall give you, I shall send you, I shall set you off on what will hopefully be a lifelong, lifelong love affair with podcasts by sending you a link to Bob's Thank episode. You. Uh, some pretty gruesome stuff in there. Yeah. Oh my, oh my oh, God. I can imagine. But yeah. he, he's doing, bless him, he's doing, um, he's now working as a, as a lecturer at, I'm going to get this wrong now, aren't I? Lancashire, Lancaster University. Sorry, Bob, if you listen to this and I got it wrong, but yeah, <laughs> but he's, he's passing on all of that amazing, all that incredible knowledge that he gleaned over all those years to a new generation of people mm. who will hopefully, uh, you know, take it to the next level. And in terms of the science, I imagine the science must just kind of come on in leaps and bounds over the years and you think about what you knew what you could do what was within the realms of the possible when you first started in 1998 mm -hmm. compared to what they can do now I mean I imagine that must be mind-blowing is it yeah I mean I think I'm quite lucky in that the the period my, my career spanned because when I joined it was blood grouping and then we would feel out DNA for a really important murder mm. um and then so DNA back then was SGM and then it's progressed to SGM plus. We use Global Filer now in Scotland. So we look at 24 areas of DNA. It's incredibly sensitive. We also do YSTR profiling. 
So, do you know, back in the day, you I'm nodding. Have... I'm nodding here as if I know what you're talking <laughs> about, but I've absolutely no idea. What you're yeah. So, back in the day, to get a um, blood grouping, you needed a good size of blood. So, probably about five pence piece size of blood at, at least. So, yeah. you know, if you didn't see it because it was too small to see easily, it didn't matter because you couldn't do anything with it. Whereas mm. now, you can get DNA from tiny blood spots. So, you know, the, the whole searching, the whole actually recovering the evidence, you've got the anti-contamination considerations, but also you've got to consider all these tiny, tiny minute traces that when I started, you know, nobody could even imagine that, that mm. they would count. I mean, we yeah. didn't wear really PPE. We sometimes wore gloves mm. if something was a bit dirty. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, yeah. you didn't really. Yeah, yeah. So now it's it's a completely different ball game, but it's... It, it's astounding, do you know, the, the things we get DNA profiles from. Mm, you know, you're yeah. talking trillions of a gram of DNA now that know, you can insane, get DNA profiling from, and it, it just yeah. is incredible. It of really course, is. the great value of that, as you know, is the, you know, the uh, historic offences, the reviews of mm -hmm. historic murders, unsolved murders, you know, looking at the original exhibits and uh re-examining them and uh you, you know your colleagues have had some fantastic results haven't yeah. they? in terms of um bringing people to justice who are probably now they thought probably thought they got away with it hadn't they mm -hmm. um, yeah. but um but uh, listen carol i appreciate it we've been going for just just about <laughs> an hour now and um you'll be relieved to know that uh we'll probably draw a line there okay. because uh, Thanks for a cup it's of a, tea. No, bless you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to go have a beer personally. But um, <laughs> yeah, listen, thanks a million. That was no really, really fascinating. And um, yeah, it's. Uh, I really take my hat off to you. I've got huge respect for you and your colleagues um, doing what is frequently a very, very distressing and unpleasant and dirty, uh, smelly job, which I know from having gone to some pretty mm. awful crime scenes. So well done, you. Thank you. And uh, I wish you the very best in terms of whatever comes next. And uh, yeah, if you ever come down south of the border, actually, actually, the startup that I'm involved in is uh, a couple of the guys are based in Glasgow. So who knows? I might get an opportunity to buy you a, a beer, or a glass of wine or a cup of coffee or whatever, <laughs> whatever is your poison, you know, at some point. So to say thank you very much. But, uh, no, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. You take care. Okay, and take I'll send care. you a link whenever, uh, whenever it goes live. Perfect. Right. Thanks Cheers, very Carol. much. All Take the care. Bye-bye. 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 Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>